I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, brrr, Autumn and I are going to talk about the polar vortex that descended upon all 48 states, uh, the lower 48, uh, as uh, our northern friends call them. And we're going to catch up. And later on in the pod, we're going to interview Reverend Timothy Peoples, who's the pastor at Emerywood Baptist Church in High Point, North Carolina. We're going to talk to Reverend Peoples about Black History Month and what it's like to be a black pastor in a predominantly white congregation in the South. And he has one of the most heartbreaking stories regarding an encounter with local police officers in Oklahoma that you'll ever hear. So stay tuned. Autumn, it's so cold outside. How are you and your family during this polar vortex that we're experiencing? So temperature-wise, we're doing about like everyone else. Um, We have fared better than a lot of folks, especially our family in Texas, because we've kept power. Um, We haven't had any burst pipes, knock on wood. Um, We did have to live with no warm water downstairs, but we had one bathroom upstairs with warm water for six people. So it's it's been an adventure, um, not unlike the Oregon Trail, but we've made it. Well, we're doing well. Uh, we're doing pretty well over here on this side of town. Uh, both uh, Autumn and I live in Norman, Oklahoma. We received about 12 inches of snow uh, over the last week and two big snowstorms that blew through. Uh, but uh, even more dangerous was the sub-freezing temperatures. We have not been above freezing for over a week now. And at one point in the week, temperatures got down to minus 15. That's not wind chill. That's the actual temperature. Minus 15. We were two degrees away from an all-time record in the state of Oklahoma. But, Autumn, I am thankful because when we look south of the border, and what I'm talking about, not the, the U.S. border, but the Red River, our brothers and sisters in the deep, Great state of Texas, the Lone Star State, are having a very difficult time. So yes. you are from Texas. Uh, you got family say, down I'm there. I'm a Texan, born in the heart of Texas. And I will tell you, Mitch, I feel like I might be a little bit to blame for this. Because okay. I've tell. been praying... I've been praying basically every night for Texas to turn blue. (laughs) I didn't mean for them to like literally freeze to death in their homes, which is what's happening. Um, It's just bananas. It is a horrible, horrible situation uh, taking place in the Lone Star State right now. Millions of Texans are without power. Uh, As you said, unfortunately, there have been numerous deaths uh, uh, accounted for indirect association with uh, the temperatures down there, uh, people without water. One of our employees at Good Faith Media who lives right outside of Austin, Texas, was without power for almost 48 hours, uh, was had to uh, uh, boil water to make certain the, bo- the water is safe. Well, they're boiling snow. They don't even have water. That's right. That's right. They're boiling snow. That's yeah. exactly right. So it is uh, a, a just a, a terrible, terrible situation down there. And a lot of people are asking, why did this happen in Texas? And there's been a lot of information come out that I think uh, a lot of people just didn't know about. Texas has its own power grid. There's three power grids in the entire United States, and one of them is uh, is assigned to Texas. Uh, and a lot of that is because the Texas wanted to deregulate uh, uh, energy, and they did so. And 
here we are. Um, their power grid uh, has become overwhelmed with what's going on, and uh, they're having to have rolling blackouts across the state. It's leaving people in a deep freeze. Um, so it's, it's unless just you live downtown, where you need to have all the lights on in the city. Or you live in Highland Park, or um, I've heard that if you live near a hospital, they are, of course, for the safety of patients there who depend on, you know, electricity for life, then you're okay. Um, So they are being selective. They are being selective. It was crazy when all of a sudden uh, the rolling blackout started and it it became very apparent that this was a much larger uh, problem that anyone had anticipated and that uh, the grids and the power companies down there were totally caught off guard. How the finger pointing began almost immediately and Texas legislatures and elected officials are primarily uh, Republican and they started pointing fingers at uh, the Biden administration. For some reason, AOC and the Green New Deal and it was quickly pointed out that it, they had nothing to do with what happened in Texas. Uh, and He's been president for four minutes. I know. And then, of course, then they quickly pointed to the frozen uh, windmills uh, and uh, even the power companies saying, no, it's not the windmills. Windmills provide 13% of our energy. We were just totally caught off guard. Um, and a lot of that had to do is a direct... Uh, association with their deregulation rules there. Um, they are set to, to handle any heat wave that Texas has in the summer, but they were not prepared for any kind of freezing temperatures like this. And mm-hmm. because of uh, the improper winterization, or really the lack of winterization to uh, a lot of their wells and, and pipes, uh, they just became overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And uh, it this this is what this is what you get when you have people who cry deregulation. They don't want government oversight. Well, when you don't have government oversight, then companies skirt safety procedures, uh, improper to winterization make to make money. It's about profits. Yeah. And this is what you get when a catastrophe uh, takes place. And then, yeah. you know, you see some legislators uh, pointing or, or, or saying things. I think it was Colorado City, the mayor of Colorado City, oh Texas. Gosh. Uh, nauseating. Uh, saying, you know, fend for yourselves. Don't dare ask us to do anything for you. You know, just, yeah, it just, it's crazy. Some of them just got on a plane and went to Cancun. Oh, <laughs> dear Teddy boy. <laughs> uh, Ted Cruz decided that he was going to peace out on his fellow Texans and head to Mexico. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if Mexico, you know, didn't want to make certain that, you know, Maybe they considered building a wall, not letting him in. Right. Exactly. Maybe they should have focused on building a power grid instead of that wall. Exactly. Nothing. Exactly. Anyway, we are thinking of you if you're listening to this in Texas. Um, be safe. Be warm. Um, and we're we're you're in our prayers for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we we laugh and and kid a lot here on the podcast, but we know that many of you are suffering down in Texas and. Uh, our heart goes out to you. We're praying for you. We are trying to support organizations down in Texas. We know a lot of great local churches are opening up their facilities as warming places, providing food and blankets uh, to people in their communities. And as crazy and as devastating as this is, it is inspiring to see people of faith uh, coming together to help their neighbors and to help one another. You are doing a good mm-hmm. job in a in the midst of a very terrible situation. So keep it up and we are praying for you. 
Well, Autumn, you and I uh, had a great uh, visit with Timothy Peoples this week. Uh, Timothy is the pastor at Emory Wood Baptist Church in High Point, North Carolina. And uh, it was one of the most eye-opening conversations that I've had in a long time. Uh, Timothy mm-hmm. is an African-American pastor uh, from Oklahoma. Uh, we claim him as a, a fellow Okie uh, and a good friend of ours as well as the pod. And he talks about what it's like as a black pastor uh, ministering within a predominantly white congregation. But he goes beyond that and, and talks about some of his personal experiences of being just a black man uh, in a predominantly white uh, culture or white state. And he tells a story about returning to Oklahoma and driving home uh, to visit his family and what happens between him and a police officer that's just heartbreaking. And so you'll want to stay tuned to hear Timothy and, uh, and the story that he tells. So stay tuned. Lot Carey is proud to bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest pastors coast to coast. Our new podcast, Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, delivers wisdom from the black church for the whole church. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or listen online at lotcary.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y dot org. We look forward to the pilgrimage with you. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, we have a very special guest with us all the way from High Point, North Carolina. Reverend Timothy Peoples is a native of Jones, Oklahoma. He attended Adrian College, where he received his Bachelor's of Arts in Religious Studies before earning his Master's of Divinity degree from Yale University School of Divinity. Prior to his current role as senior ministry at Emory Wood, Timothy served churches in Michigan, Connecticut, and Texas. When he's not chasing around his horse-sized dogs, Frankie and Cordorza, you can find him searching for his best pie with his wonderful wife, Valerie Lott. Timothy, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you for having me. We're so glad you're here. And before we get into our first question, I need to know about what kind of pie you like. What's your favorite? Oh, um, so my favorite uh, is a bourbon um, apple pie. Our favorite place is in Duluth, Georgia, a Crave pie. And even for our wedding, we brought them all the way from Georgia to Nashville because we were so in love with their pie and just amazing. So anywhere we go, we always search for the best pie. But anytime I can find a bourbon apple pie with just some good caramel in it. Oh, Lord. It's, oh it's amazing. Gosh. You had me yeah. at bourbon and then you added apple and uh, caramel on it. So, wow, that sounds delicious. Yes. <laughs> like holy trifecta. Of it's, it's Jesus in a pie. It really is. It is. <laughs> You're in Oklahoma City. You may have already discovered Pie Junkie. I don't know. Yes. Okay. They have the best key lime pie, I think, like ever. I'll have to, I have not had the key lime pie. And I, I probably should go home to Oklahoma more. My mother does ask for that too. So um, <laughs> I need to do better with going back. <laughs> Excellent. Well, speaking of family, we like to ask all of our interviewer or interviewees on the podcast during this pandemic, um, how are you and your family handling this, your congregation handling this? Are you healthy? Yeah. Um, you know, 
Valerie and I have talked about like no one should want to go through their first year of marriage through a pandemic. Um, All the things that you expect to learn five to 10 years later, you learn in the first year, right? Uh, Because you're stuck in the house together (laughs) and all the things. Uh, And so while I am uh, working at the church, she's in law school right now. And so it is uh, what's been crazy is because they can't go in person. They have been doing, um, online courses, but because she's a 2L, they have the night courses. So when I get in uh, from work, she is going straight into class. So we have been missing each other a lot in that. Um, But uh, the congregation has been really wonderful with figuring out all the ways to do new and creative uh, ways of worship while we, next week, I believe, will start a year of not having in-person worship. And so that's been just very difficult, but still trying to find ways to be uh, in community. We've done uh, drop-off breakfast to every family in the church for Sundays or food trucks or music out in the lot. So we've been trying really hard to do things, but it's just been, it's been hard, but all in all, I'm, I'm somewhat healthy. My my therapist would say at least I think so. I mean, that's a good thing. You're healthy where it counts. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> wow, you know I thought it was difficult to start a company uh, during a pandemic, but you won up this and just went decided to go get married during a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, and I should say we were married probably five months before, so you know it's still in those yeah, sure. honeymoon stages. Yeah, and, but yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, and then everything just hit, and then you're just like, oh, wow, all the crazy comes out now. Um, (laughs) There's a lot we could unpack right there, right? Yeah. (laughs) But we'll leave that to your therapist. Uh, Yeah. Well, Timothy, we are very thankful that you agreed to be our guest this week as Good Faith Media continues to celebrate Black History Month. As the country celebrates and remembers, um, I'm just going to ask you off the bat, who are some of your heroes as we think about black history? Uh, who are some of the, the individuals who have inspired you through your life and career? One of my all-time favorite uh, heroes is Abraham Heschel. And I love Heschel not just because of his amazing uh, writing, uh, which I cry every time I read any of his works, uh, but also his role in the civil rights movement. When you notice that iconic picture of MLK uh, walking in Salem, uh, right next to him is Heschel. And he gives that line of, uh, I felt like my feet were praying with Mm -hmm. every step, every movement that I made. Um, and, and he continued to be such a huge component in the civil rights movement, also because he knew what life was like because of, of World War II, where his own family were dealing uh, with so much uh, hurt and pain um, with concentration camps, with Hitler, with Nazism. And so beginning to walk that movement into uh into the civil rights, knowing that change has to happen and it has to start with the church is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, other uh, heroes that I look at in, in that movement is uh, Vernon Johns. You know, we, when we think about, uh, we love to put lots of people on pedestals, right? We love mm-hmm. to put MLK on a pedestal. Sure. We love to put Rosa Parks on a pedestal, but we, we forget that those were so many people um, before them doing a lot of the same things that paved the way. Um, 
for them. And, and such is the same for Vernon Johns, paving the way for MLK to be able to be the person that he is. And, and I like to think of Howard Thurman um, as well as mm-hmm. one who paved the way for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I, and I say that as not in a way that I am like this big, huge person or anything like that. I'm saying this as, as Howard Thurman being one of the only few black pastors that we have working in a predominantly white church and really trying to be, make it become a multi-ethnic church, realizing what the kingdom of God looks like um, and reading and understanding Howard Thurman really helped push me into my calling of working in a predominantly white church of understanding reconciliation that we are reconciled to God, but also reconciled to each other. And so when I think of, of the craziness that I have to deal with, I can only imagine how crazy it was for Howard Thurman um, at a large scale, but also in sixties and seventies and eighties and what he had to deal with through that. Uh, So those are just a few uh, of of the heroes when I think about, you know, in black history. Right. And you make it, you make it, it's such an important point because, you know, a lot of times when we're talking about uh, our histories, uh, whether that's black history or in my case, brown history with my Native American ancestry, uh, a lot of times we focus upon the the champions of the cause. And, and you mentioned the, yeah. some of those in black history, but it, it really was this incredible movement that was afoot. And there were so many other individuals that were part of the, the movements and the history of black and brown people with not only in this country, but worldwide. And it really did take a community of people coming together collectively to stand up for justice and move, uh, the country and and the world forward in trying to strive and, and bend that arc of history towards justice. So th- what a wonderful, important point that you just made. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And, and so often we forget when we look at a movement, we, we've often put, you know, one or two people for it. But as you mm-hmm. said, it, a movement, it, it needs an entire community, an entire group of people in order to be pushed forward, in order to actually move forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can't just be alone in that. Yeah. And that. to keep moving forward, right? right? To not move just over the line and then stop. But it's, you have to have new energy mm-hmm. coming from, from behind and younger people rising up within the movement and continuing that trudge forward. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I so, often talk about um, it, uh, there, I, I cheated in high school on anything math related. It would thank God for Kayla Parker. But in <laughs> physics, uh, she helped me understand like the, the motion of physics and that in that uh, that unless there is a force of anything, then standing still is still an action like you, you need a force in order to move. Uh, and, and when we think about the movements, whether it's Black Lives Matter movement, whether it's civil rights movement, there had to be a force in order to progress in pushing that person and pushing that uh, that group of people into something in order to move forward. And I think a big part of when we look at 60s, whether then or now, uh, there are so many forces around us that are causing us to progress and move and go instead of being a stagnant place. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. So if you were to recommend resources regarding the black church or black theology, uh, who, who would you recommend? Oh, um, so one of my favorites that I've been rereading, uh, is sister outsider by Audre Lorde. I think 
everybody should uh, be reading that. And especially, um, I always get the name messed up, so I have to look it up. But the, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. It's only three pages long, but it is a huge, uh, I mean, it is so important wow. uh, in her works on feminism um, and how we have to really work along with one another. And, and if we're talking about a understanding that it works for everybody it can't be the you know the crabs in the bucket thing that once one gets hired we pull them down right mm -hmm. um patricia collins i think is her work of uh black um uh, black psychology mm -hmm. uh in that she talks about the black church she talks about uh black culture she talks about womanism and black feminism which are two very different understandings in that um which it helps understand the mindset of what's going on, especially today. And she writes this, and I think she writes that in 2005, uh, but it's so prevalent today. Uh, one of my all-time favorites is uh, Alan Rabiteau, uh, The Invisible Church. I think that's right. It's either visible or invisible church, one of those. But in that, he talks about the movement from the church um, from being in the time of slavery and, and what that was like in order to have um, a white pastor preaching to the slaves and a black pastor preaching to the enslaved people and the different messages that came from that and how in this time where these enslaved people are being preached to by their own, uh, they incorporate uh so many traditions from Africa, which gets us into the movement of dancing and and the speaking in tongues and the calling out that we see in black church today. But, but also when the church has, uh, when slavery is over and the uh, actual building, church house, as my family also always called it, the church house is built, it turns this whole Thing into like the Old Testament of the Ark, where God stays in this place, right? And so th this church house is a sacred place where we go to experience one another, but also experience God, because this is where God is. So I have my one set of clothes that I'm going to wear every week when I go to the church house, because it's holy, it's sacred. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we realize that and how uh, the church, the black church really hasn't changed too much, it has a lot of those same staples in it, it really helps understand why um, why worship in a black church is so uh, so lively, um, but right. also why it's so long at times because we are in the space of God, and, and yet. Uh, and in my own context where I preach often, like, you know, God is everywhere. God is not just in this building. Uh, my mom would say, mm, no, God's at the church house, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> I love, I love mom theology. Love it. Uh, it's, it is sacred. <laughs> it is very sacred. <laughs> uh, but uh, I mean, those are just three that I would say are so important. Yeah. Um, oh, and then, I mean, I can go on and on, but then Katie Cannon, her works, on um, womanism in the um, in the black church are just so influential into understanding um, the I would say how women um, have moved from just this 
place of being allowed into the pulpit just to clean it or just to be up there. And it's not just Uh, a space for a man, but now this is a space for all of us to be a part of that. If we are going mm -hmm. to be in the working of all of God's people. Right. Um, And so uh, most of the things that I, uh, my undergrad minor was in feminist and uh, feminist ethics and womanist studies. So most of the things that I read are all around, uh, womanist studies, womanist theology. Um, and so when I think of big, you know, things that everybody should read, it is Audre Lorde, Katie Cannon, Patricia mm-hmm. Collins, uh, Carrie Day. All of these people are very influential of how uh, the church is today and, and was in the past. Well, there's some great resources. I'm really looking forward to uh, watching the four-part series on PBS right now about uh, from Henry Louis Gates Jr. Uh, he's got a book yes. coming out tomorrow called The Black Church. This is our story. This is our song. And really yes. looking forward to, to sitting down with that and, and watching and, and reading. Well, Timothy, you're in a unique situation. You mentioned uh, Howard Thurman a while ago. You are a black, per, uh, black pastor serving uh, a majority white congregation. In fact, I think you've served uh, majority white congregations throughout your career. So let me just ask, um, as a black pastor serving in these predominantly white congregations, what have you encountered? What, what uh, over your ministry, what have you learned? What has surprised you? Um, you know, is, is it, I mean, just let you talk. Yeah. Um, I've always been surprised by the most liberal churches I've worked at. Okay. Um, as a, as a black minister in those mm-hmm. spaces, you would think that those are the spaces that would allow you um, to be able to challenge, but also educate that we're learning from each other in that. But, mm-hmm. but a lot of times in that, because the church can be so progressive, uh, they have the mindset that they already know, right? Mm-hmm. They already know all these things. There is nothing else you can tell me about right. race or your experience. And if I've you try, arrived. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I am, I'm so woke, right? Um, hashtag. Yeah. Exactly. Hashtag, hashtag woke. <laughs> it's so true. It, it is. And, and, and that's the thing to ever um, say, well, actually, that's not the way you should say that, or right. actually, that was offensive to me, then they become the victim, right? Sure. Uh, and so, surprisingly, I have had better experience in more moderate congregations mm-hmm. to be able to have education, to be able to work back and forth um, into uh, my own experience, but also looking into each other's experiences, mm-hmm. right? Um, I cling to Alan Bozak's, which is another great resource, uh, uh, Radical Reconciliation. And he says in that, that in order for, uh, for reconciliation to ever happen, we have to be in each other's faces and spaces, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that if we are just one group of people trying to figure this all out, but we've all had pretty much similar experiences because of our race or, or our socioeconomic experience or a lot of these pieces, then we actually don't fully know it, right? We can read all the things we want, but until we actually encounter someone uh, that is different from us, that may have different stories and experiences, we really have not gotten to the place where we really know, right? Right. And and not to say that that one individual uh, will have all the experiences, right? And it takes me back to undergrad where um, 
I grew up in Jones, Oklahoma, right? And I go to school in Michigan, 45 minutes away from Detroit. Um, and my best friend there is Aisha. Aisha's experience in Detroit uh, and my experience in Jones, Oklahoma are two very different experience, sure, black yeah. experiences, right? right? right. Uh, <laughs> I'm the only black person in the school and for parties, we set a bale of hay on fire. Mm-hmm. She had never been on a farm, right? So <laughs> it's, not, it's not to say that every black person's experience is the same, but it, it is to say that we have to be able to encounter each other and to know those different experiences, right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, Ibram Kendi could give us all the the facts and all the things in the world, but it's still part of a book, right? We, we haven't touched that flesh and blood to know mm. the differences in that. Yeah, that. And so in my church congregation, one of the things that I realized today as a pastor that I was doing a hindrance to my own congregation because I didn't share a lot of my own stories. And so for them, they thought, oh, yeah, we have a black pastor, but we never realized that you went through some of those same things too. Like mm. we, we just thought, you know, you they, they skipped you. Um, and uh, in June of last year, my wife and I went home, went back to Oklahoma, um, and we're 10 minutes away from the house. We have just did this 20-hour drive. We're tired, um, 10 minutes away from the house, and I get pulled over. Everybody's going faster than me, so I know I'm not speeding. I'm not doing anything. The cop comes to my wife's side, and he uh, says, ma'am, are you okay? And she said, yeah. And so he tells me to get out. And, and I asked if he needs my license and registration. And um, he says, I don't care about that. Get out the car. Um, and so I get out the car and, you know, he, the first thing he asked me is, um, who's the white woman in the car? He doesn't tell me that I'm speeding. He doesn't tell me any of these things. He just says, who's the white woman in the car? And he goes back and he talks to her. She's upset, right? Um, and, you know, I said, that's my wife. Uh, he's like, well, I'm writing you a ticket and you know what it's for. Just know this is th- what the ticket is for. And, and so um, it was only because we knew a mutual person uh, from Jones, Oklahoma, uh, that he let me go. They said, mm-hmm. ah, because you know them, I'll let you go. Um, and you know, the rest of the trip was just awful because my wife is honing in on this, but, but I go back and tell my congregation this and they, they say, Oh my goodness, wait, wait, you, you get stopped too like this, like, because you're black, wait, wait, someone, a cop did this to you. We would never expect that, but you're, you're Tim, you're, you're, you went to Yale, you've done all these. And I said that that doesn't stop. (laughs) <laughs> the right. experience right, of what's going on here. Yeah. And so I've learned the, the power of story. Um, mm. and, and, and I shouldn't say I learned, I knew how much the power of story is happening because every Sunday you get up in a pulpit and you tell the power, the narrative theology, the, the power of story, but the, the power of story of self. And, and so that this changes a lot of, of what my congregation or even people around me think and know, um, mostly because they know me yeah. and they know if, 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 Tim is getting harassed and all this, and there's a problem, right? If, sure. if this guy who's always smiley and happy is getting beat down and uh, all these things, and something's going on, we need to have conversation. And, and this helped to start conversation around it. Um, so I've always been surprised, I guess, to answer that question, I went on a whole long piece. I've always been surprised by, uh, by people being surprised uh, of what's happening in our world 
mostly because they've never experienced it. Do you think a lot of that, I'm, I'm certain uh, the surprise came obviously from your congregations, predominantly white. Do, do you think maybe one of the mistakes that we have made over time is that in this attempt to uh, decolorize society, that we misunderstood that the color of one's skin still does matter. It, it, I mean, yeah. there's, there are these cultural nuances. There is this history that, that we're all attached to. You're a black man. I'm a brown man. Um, we have these histories, you know, that, that we, that, that are part of us. And those, those, that history now plays a part in our current reality and our current experiences. And so when you're a minister within a predominantly white congregation, a, a pastor of color, a lot of times people do forget that. And, for, and because yeah. they've been, I don't know, they've, it's been pounded into their heads so long that to, to look past skin color, uh, to, to, to see each other, you know, heart and soul and, and judge people on that. And, and they, they of course vote or they, they quote MLK, uh, a lot yeah. uh, about content of character. They realize you didn't have to tell him. Okay, he was a black man. He knew it. He lived it every day. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he wasn't saying forget it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of times, I, I think that that is something that's important that you just brought up. Is this the power of personal experience, shared experience? And so when somebody hears someone else's story, it's very powerful because then all of a sudden it humanizes you to the congregation, not only as a brother or sister, but as someone who has a unique history and unique experiences. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And, and you know, this idea of you know, the first thing when I walk in the doors, when I first got here is, you know, we're colorblind. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's, <laughs> see, we're going to change that. Yeah. That's not what I want. I want you to see me for who I am and I will see you for who you are. Like I don't, let's not do that colorblind theology. That's all bad. <laughs> yeah. So do you think that the inverse has happened for your congregation, you know, of what you experienced with this police officer? You know, he just saw a black man in the car with a white woman. Do you feel like having you at the helm of this congregation has given your congregants a different lens to view black people that they encounter in their real lives? Yeah, I think so. Um, the funny part is that most of them that I'm, I'm probably the, the black person that they uh, <laughs> experience, you know, in the real they, they don't have too many other ones. Uh, okay. I mean, we, uh, to explain more about our congregation, we sit on Country Club Drive. We're two, so two blocks <laughs> from the country. So, uh, Got it. okay. <laughs> That's all you needed to say. Got it. <laughs> but I have had some of them come up to me and say, you know, somebody came to my house to do work. And I felt comfortable to ask them a question. They, they, they were black. And, and, you know, we sat down and had an entirely different conversation mm. um, than I ever would have had, right? Mm. That, that um, I, I didn't say that I knew their experiences. I didn't say that I totally understand, but I learned from them. And this is just the electrician coming by. This is the, the guy coming doing this. And so I think in some ways it is giving them um, – 
some action to be able to ask questions um, or even just to have conversations. And this is one thing that I always talk about. Just just have a conversation with somebody. They'll let you know if they don't want to talk to you or talk about it. But mm-hmm. it, the power of of talking to one another and able to uh, enable us to get those shared experiences, right, or, or to understand those experiences. And so I have seen them step out a little bit more with a little more courage to those uh, people of color. Um, and that's been fascinating. And they've been really engaged in wanting to do things. And, and I say, whoa, 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 we're not just going to go and invite some black church down the street and say, tell us everything, right? right, we, right, right. I, y'all are not going to embarrass me like that. We're going to have some conversation. <laughs> <laughs> not just going to get some fried chicken and watermelon because you think, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> gotcha. I totally understand. <laughs> but but I, but I as a, we are now starting slowly, and that's one of the things that I, I I, yeah. and I, and I know this is very different from many other pastors. And so everyone has their own thing. I, I have a, a, an issue of just getting to the pulpit and condemning and saying things just in a sermon. And then we check it off our box because it, you know, we, we've done that. We need to do that. We need to say that so people will know. Mm-hmm. But I think education is a, a very important piece of that. Um, and so for me, I, I will say things from the pulpit at times, but most of the time it comes through, we're going to have some study groups and we're going to understand why Christian nationalism is very bad. And not just because you're going to ignore my one, two or three sentences in the, in the sermon, we're going to talk about this in black space and understanding um, discussions and PowerPoints and books. We're going to really get in depth in this because if we believe that this is part of the gospel work too, if we believe that all of these things are necessary so that we can be reconciled to God, then it can't just be this one-off check. We have to incorporate it in the same way that we incorporate all the other aspects of our faith. Right. Uh, and so we it needs to become embedded into our faith, embedded into the study and theology in which we believe um, to know. And, and, and also, I know that in my congregation, if I say something quickly in the pulpit, they're just going to ignore it. But but rather, we're going to sit down and have these discussions because we can ask questions and disagree and agree in all different types of ways. And so I think to go to, the, to back to the main question, I, I do believe that that has given them. Um, calls to be able to have better conversations with people of color um, mm-hmm. and even reaching into different socioeconomic um, ranges and to see a very different experience than their own and to be able to hear it um, and not just be ready to have a um, a comeback for whatever they say. Right. And you, this is so fascinating to me, Tim, because you know what you just mentioned, especially you know, with you in your congregation, as well as many more liberal to moderate congregations who are seeking to be educated, to uh, learning more about what it means to strive towards racial justice, there is sometimes this over eagerness by white churches and white Christians to leap into these conversations or to try to force these conversations. Yeah. And a lot of times we forget this conversation from the black or brown perspective 
that there is a natural hesitancy to enter into these conversations or when you yeah. see an overly aggressive white person, there is a historical reason to to, to question that yeah. over eagerness. <laughs> yeah. And so it's important to recognize this can't happen overnight. Um, exactly. This is this is going to be some long, hard work that we have to do as a people of faith and as a church. Uh, to, to continue to bend this this arc of justice uh, for history, uh, mm-hmm. so that's that's just a, a valuable uh, valuable point that, that you just made. So let me ask and, and you, if, yeah, good. If, if if I would just say too, when, when I see people really eager into that, I tell I've been at this church starting my fourth year, and we are still slowly inching into these conversations, right? And mm-hmm. not that I'm not talking about it in Sunday, right, right. not that I'm not talking about it in Bible study, but we're still moving into this. And so when we're so eager and pushing it and pushing all of this down their throat, a lot of times I don't feel like people are really just, I think they're just doing it for the sake of doing it. So they did it, but not really digesting what's going on, what's happening to see what's happening around us too. Right. Right. Um, So, so you're right. I'm sorry. That that was just a great, no, no, you're exactly right. And I'm on the, on the flip side of this, I can remember standing in a church in Washington, D.C., giving a presentation um, uh, a couple of years ago, and we were, the topic of, of racial justice came up. And, you know, I was reminding them of, of the quote of, you know, the, the arc bends. We would love for it to bend mm-hmm. 90 degrees, but it's, it's an arc, and it, and it bends gradually. And the point was, this is going to take a lot of work, and it can't happen yeah. overnight. But then I had this black father stand up. And he said to me, looked at me and I and said, I appreciate the sentiment and I, and I agree with what you're saying in essence, but while you're taking it slow, my son, or mm. my sons are dying in the streets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I need it to bend 90 degrees. Mm. I didn't mm. have a retort for that, you know, and it was like, you're Ooh. right. You're absolutely right. And so it's, it's this yeah. constant tension that we're, we're dealing with of trying to drag and, and, and bend and, and, and work hard to, to, towards racial justice while at the same time recognizing that while we're doing this, there are so many injustices that are happening right before our eyes and we continue yeah. to have to call it out. And I know you've done a great job of doing that uh, in your congregation. It, it, I mean, it's hard to, and I'm, uh, what comes to mind when you say that is, um, the Frederick Douglass quote where we, we work harder with our children than our old, I'm butchering it. It's a whole piece in that because our children will understand these as new while our old have been fighting against these for so long. And, and so it reminds me of just like, especially in the church, you know, with our youth and children, you know, they, they have a lot of these social justice pieces with race and, and gender and sexuality. They like have these things down, but it is those that we have been, those old, good old Christians for a long time that you're trying to take away something that they've known for so long and say, but just look like black women, children, and men are being shot in front of your eyes and you're still saying, ah, there's no, there's nothing going on, right? right. Just look, we, we look at that this um, economic injustice, that black women have more uh, debt, student loan, than any other person. Um, but, ah, we're not going to do anything to change that, right? And so mm-hmm. I get that point of, of like, 
our kids are being killed. Our, our, our parents are, are being beat down in front of us. And so when is this art going to be in? Um, and, and I think that's for me as a black pastor and white, the hardest part is how do I help these people get it faster, quicker, just to, you know, to see what's around them, but also like, just why won't they see it? Yeah. I think that's one of the <laughs> right. biggest things. Exactly. I, I, yeah. Like yeah. what else can you do? Um, to get someone to see it, the injustice when it's right in front of their eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Why can't you see it? I don't necessarily think the arc and the like 90 degree angle crowbar that like I would like to carry around because when you're telling the story about your wife in the passenger seat, like I was identifying with that because I'm a bit of a like sassafras and I don't know that that police officer would have made it back around. So <laughs> I've been in that car. But what I will say is that while we're having these conversations with people who are moving toward, you know, at least acknowledging this, um, we can put our own parents in a headlock um, and we can also stop our car behind a police car when we know there is a black body in a car and watch. Um, And that is something that like, you know, we can do like, so we can do the the things that we need to do to acknowledge the injustices that are happening. Um, while we also continue to, to bend that arc. Yeah. 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 We do need to get involved and, Mm -hmm. you know, just learning is, is not just, uh, cerebral. It's experiential as Tim's already pointed out. And Mm -hmm. so what that means for, for, from my standpoint is that both Brown, black, white, disciples of Jesus need to get involved in their communities, standing yep. up for justice, uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and calling out injustices whenever they see them and standing up for justices or justice, uh, by speaking out and stepping out. And that's what Tim yeah. is doing in high point, North Carolina, uh, at Emerywood <laughs> Baptist church. And we appreciate that. Well, Tim, uh, it's been great to, to talk to you today. Uh, we've got one last question for you and autumn, uh, ask this question to every guest. And so I'm going to let Autumn take it away. Yeah. So our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of everything we've talked about today and your work, what is your more to tell? Yeah. Um, I'm going to quote a piece from Audre Lorde, if that's okay, mm-hmm. for my more to tell. Uh She states that racism is a real condition of all of our lives in this place and time. And I urge each one of us here to reach down into that deep place of knowledge inside himself and herself and touch that terror and the loathing of any difference that lives there and see whose face it wears. Then the personal as the political can begin to illuminate all of our choices. Uh, in our more to tell, I think as we are looking at black history, as we continue uh, in understanding and educating ourselves, as we continue to understand each other's experiences, what is the face of the terror that that's inside of each of us and confront that mm-hmm. um, and also reconcile with that? Mm-hmm. Um, because th- there's, I would say there until we can confront our fears, until we can confront a lot of those terrors, they will continue to be the fears and the nightmares and the terrors and the scary monsters 
And maybe they're not that. Probably they're not that. Mm. Um, and so this, as we said, as our learning should also be not just cerebral, but also active. Um, in all of our learning, how do we face those terrors? How do we face those fears and move forward um, to knock down the role of racism um, so that we can actually be a better community and move forward together? Wise words, Tim. Thank you so much. And I'm going to echo your mother's uh, suggestion. You need to get back to Oklahoma as quickly as possible. We would love to, to have you uh, here in Oklahoma City and uh, just stay off the roads. Yes, yes. <laughs> <Stay I did. laughs> Uh, but no, seriously, we'd love to have you come back. Uh, we'll go get some coffee and pie once this pandemic's left, and yes. uh, we'll have a good time. I, I haven't met Valerie; would love to meet her, uh, and because uh, uh, she sounds like you know she can she can uh, you know throw a punch or two. So I'm excited about yeah, oh, that. Oh, she can't. Don't worry. She can't. <laughs> uh, well, Reverend Timothy Peoples, uh, senior minister at Emerywood Baptist Church in High Point, North Carolina. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for being a guest at Good Faith Weekly. Thank you all so much for having me. And to our listeners, thank you again for tuning in to Good Faith Weekly. As always, we appreciate your support. And until next time, keep living good faith.